Well, I want to invite you to turn to the middle of your Bible in the book of Psalms. And toward the end of that book, there are 15 songs known as the Songs of Ascent. And tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 131. And I'll tell you that if the message you're about to hear isn't your cup of tea, don't worry about it. I preached this psalm last August, and that one was about 20 minutes, and it had a really great illustration at the end. So if this ain't your cup of tea, just get on our podcast, get on our website, August 2020, Psalm 131. But if you're still here, let's get into Psalm 131, which of course is a psalm of ascent. And these songs were sung by literal pilgrims on their journey up the mountain to the temple where heaven meets earth, and they would worship with God's people. They'd be reminded of the great stories, and they would sing these 15 songs on their road trip. And these songs are great for us because we are navigating the varied terrain of a world still figuring out how to do life on this side of a pandemic how to do life in a divided and fractured world where pain and struggle are everyday realities. We are given these songs that encourage us to keep walking on our journeys. Amen? One of the questions I love to ask that I'm going to ask you now is this. Where are you on your journey? We've been looking at a lot of them. We're rounding home now. But where are you this week on your journey? Some of you might be walking in lockstep with our shepherd Jesus. You're feeling good in the neighborhood. Some of you feel like Jesus is a long way away and you're just playing catch up because the energy required just to function these days seems too great. How many of you feel like Jesus is way back there and you're just trudging on doing your own thing. That's kind of me this week. I feel like I've missed Jesus a lot in my coming and going. Wherever you are in your journey, I hope some of you feel rested and contented. I hope some of you are feeling good. Others of us, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you felt really rested and content? Like your shoulders are relaxed. Some of you are imagining the last time you were sitting on a beach. And your phone is like back in the hotel room and you're just content. All is right with the world. Can you remember? How many of you is it recent? Like the last six weeks. Like you, you felt like you're in a good spot. Anybody? Show of hands. Yep. Yep, the people that went and camped and hiked for a month after retiring from their jobs. Amen, amen. Mm -hmm. Cool. How about this? For the rest of us, what would it look like to live this week with some form of inner rest and contentment, even if we're not hiking, we're not on a beach, And we're still navigating a noisy and chaotic world. Is that even possible? Enter Psalm 131. 
And remember that this is a road trip song. But the song that's being sung in Psalm 131 that we're about to read in just a moment is the kind of song at the end of the record that's that quiet, reflective, acoustic track. You know the one I'm talking about. That one where the person is just like, I got this band, and they just kind of curl up. And a lot of times it's the one that you might skip. But a lot of times it becomes your favorite one when you're in the right mode, in the right mood. If you're like me and you have that one night a month where you find yourself in the living room and all the lights are off and the candle is lit and your wife comes in very concerned because you're just strumming an acoustic guitar contemplating life. Or so I'm told. I don't know. I've never done this except every month. This is a song that's quiet and reflective, and it invites you into its space. And remember, it's a road trip song, even though it's whispered with a glass of red wine. And you just may dare to believe that I can navigate this week, even if feeling rested and contented is a distant memory, Perhaps I can curl up with this song and try to embody it and try to take it with me into the chaos of my week. And you can sing it like these pilgrims did and say, okay, I can keep walking with an awareness that all will be well when I go with God and I'm safe in His care. That's the image, the picture, the psalm is painting. But you've got to hear it with pilgrims walking through dark valleys and steep mountain paths. Do you understand? It's a dichotomy. It's a paradox. It's a juxtaposition. But take heart. It's one that you can try to work and live in the paradox of your life this week. Wouldn't we all love to move with an inner sanctuary through an external chaos? Let's listen and really Let the whispery acoustic song move us and speak to us. It's only three verses. This evening I'm going to read from the ESV, which I haven't read in a long time, but I love this translation of this song. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes aren't raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God and may it be for me this week. Amy graduated from the University of North Texas in 2009 with a degree in child development and family studies, and she was very fortunate to get her dream job right after graduation at Children's Medical Center in Dallas in the Child Life Department. The Child Life Department is the liaison between the families and patients and the medical staff. She and her team were there to ensure that these hospital stays um, go as well as they possibly can in a very difficult situation. And so she gets this job, 
and she's thrust into the chaos of one of the greatest hospitals in the region, dealing with really difficult things. And so she was passionate about it. She loved her work, and she tried to learn everything she could. She tried to show that she could do it, and she tried to find her place in a competitive environment. Because what she began to see pretty early on at the lunch break in the cafe area is a lot of other passionate, knowledgeable, wonderful co-workers who love to tell you about the people they studied with and the certifications that they had already received and where they did their internship and where their plans are. Because how many of you, and you're starting your career, have yourself or been around a lot of others who are just trying to hack it and figure it out and show you that they're worthy of being here, right? I see it all the time in pastors. We, we have, especially in our 20s and 30s, um, a culture that deifies ambition and stepping over whoever it takes so you can climb to the top. She never blamed these co-workers. She just started to notice. And then she started to notice in her own self that, okay, I need to prove myself too. Well, she gets pregnant with Emma. She resigns from the job so she can be home with the girls for a little while longer. But then, six years later, about six years later, she reconnects with her old supervisor. And wouldn't you know it, there's a position available. And it was a part-time position. So she took the position in the same department with the same supervisor, yet this was a very different Amy. Six years, she'd been married longer. She had been a mother. She had lived some life. She'd lived through some struggle. And more than anything, she was comfortable in her own skin. She understood who she was. She understood who she wasn't. She also understood who she was in Christ. And that mattered very little when it came to degrees and certifications and fancy designations behind your name. This was a different Amy that stepped in, and she came back with a quiet confidence with who she was and what she could do, and she still had that same passion, and she still wanted to show this person that she could be attentive and do the best job that she could do with whoever she was with, but her lunchroom conversations felt and sounded a lot different. And when she was there amongst all these others who were trying to prove themselves, she was able to sit and eat her salad and just be quietly confident in who she was. I think this is a real-life picture of what the psalmist is singing. Some of you, when you were hearing that, thought, how in the world does verse 1 square with the rest of it, that image of a weaned child and its mother? If you're looking at it in your Bible... 
you might look at it again and say, what's up with that? And I think it's the difference between Amy at Children's the first time and then the Amy that came back and had a better sense of who she was. So our big idea for the evening and how these two things hold together is this. I can live with quiet confidence when I know who I am and whose I am. Who I am is a matter of reality and understanding you're not the center of the universe. Amen? Whose I am is a matter of relationship. I am belonging to someone and something bigger than myself. Shout out to the neighborhood kids in their Zoom today. Your big idea is what? Okay. I can be a part of something big because you're connected to someone bigger. Amen? This is the big idea that holds this short psalm together. In a noisy and chaotic world filled with sickness and struggle and self-centeredness, this is that quiet acoustic alternative that you're invited to carry with you into it. And it's no wonder that Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher of old said that this is one of the shortest psalms to read but one of the longest to learn and by God's grace it won't be the longest to preach but let's dig into it in the remainder in the last half of our talk this evening first let's unpack this idea that I can live with quiet confidence when I know who I am basically let me put it to you this way Understanding who I am involves a healthy understanding of who I ain't. Amen? That's what's going on in verse 1. Can I give you a Texan translation? I did this a year ago when I preached it, and I just was going through all these commentaries and notes, and I thought, man, I just can't do it any better than my Texan translation. And here's what it says. Mark already read it, and that's why he's laughing. Thank you, my friend. This is the Texan translation of verse 1. You ready for it? I ain't too big for my britches, and I'm going to stay in my lane. You with me on that? A Texan accent is very different from a southeastern accent. And this is how a Texan reads Psalm 131, verse 1. No one else is laughing. That's why we need Mark in this church. Thank you. I'll save the... Accent, but basically what he's saying is, I ain't perfect, I ain't in charge, and I ain't got it all figured out. That's what he's talking about in the second half of verse one. He says, like, okay, fine, I get it. I won't get spiraling out and spun out in trying to figure out the unknowable mysteries of the universe. It's right there in that psalm in verse one. And this is the quiet troubadour with the acoustic guitar saying, I figured it out, and I need you to. Also, but here's why it's so hard in our culture because, like Amy's wonderful co workers doing good, saintly work amongst kids that need help, they are still conditioned. We are still conditioned in a culture that says, Get instead of give. It's about driven ambition. Get what you can. If it ain't nailed down, grab it. It also is a culture that walks on others, right? Even in noble 
places like hospitals and churches. We're always trying to ascend, and we want it, not that person. And ultimately, what you see is a value of self no matter the cost. Look at the pollution in the state of our world. Doesn't matter. I need it. I want it. I'm going to use it, and that's that. Look at the state of the disparity of income and poverty. Doesn't matter. Me, 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 number one. I'm going to keep and get. I'm not going to give. And yet, we see in places like Romans 12, 16, a statement that gets repeated in places like Philippians 2, and then later in the prison epistles of Colossians, Ephesians, and, and in, um, in the end of the Peter letters, you see statements pointing to a kingdom way that is in direct contrast to our culture. Did you read that yet? In Romans, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Y'all know what haughty means. You know it when you see it. Hmm. But associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. The painful realization of our Christian culture today is are we, just like the culture, driven to get, walking on others instead of associating with the lowly? Are we valuing ourself over the lives of our neighbors and others? The kingdom culture, the Jesus way, sees not a savior who got, but he gave. Christ emptied himself. He lifted others instead of walking on them. And ultimately, he valued others at the greatest cost where he gave his life to reconcile the world to a loving father. I cannot tell you any clearer. The way of America is in stark opposition. It's antichrist when it comes to the kinds of other-centered sacrificial love that Jesus is routinely calling us to. And the psalmist, years before Christ, is calling us to have a reality check that you ain't all that. And I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but we are going to go back into the world and every message you receive is going to be, buy this and you'll be better than your neighbor. Do that and you'll be better than your coworker. And the way of Christ is to lift others and to be other-centered and to love even at great cost. And it's hard but the message in Psalm 1 and the message of the cross is to give and love, not get and walk on others. And the psalmist gets it. Understanding who I am involves a healthy understanding of who I ain't. You don't have to walk around now and be a doormat and say, well, Adam said I got to love others even if they're treating me miserably and I'm just dying on the vine there's wisdom in all of this. It's a healthy understanding. Dallas Willard says there's this branch of Christianity called miserable sinner Christianity. I'm also not saying God is just always disappointed with you. You're just a worm. You're just a lowly sinner. The thing about the cross is that he forgave you and he's calling you to better life. And if your image of God is one that's doing this, I think you need a better image of one that's doing this. And he's beckoning you, come to me, come follow me, like our call to worship said.
It's a healthy understanding of who I ain't. And in verse 1, you also see a healthy understanding of what I can't. It's what I can't understand. I can't know it all. I can't do it all. You're shifting the center of gravity of what you know, which ain't that much. And there's freedom when I remove myself from being the center of the universe. Right now, there's a tension that you're feeling because guess what? There's something that you don't know and you want to know it. There is something in front of you you can't see and you just know no matter how hard you pray and how much you squint, you just can't see it. So I want to ask you these questions so that you can name it because naming it is the first step to freedom to shift the center of gravity from your own mind and your own eyes like the psalmist says in verse 1. Okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. No matter how high I lift my eyes, I can't see it all. Okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. No matter how much I want to elevate my own heart and spirit, I just can't figure it all out. Would you name what is it you don't know? What is it you can't see? And when you name it, you begin to realize, oh yeah, this is the thing that's feeding me with all of this anxiety and energy, and I want to know it, but I just can't. And the line forms to the left of saints who've gone before us that have prayed like Paul to be removed from some pain and difficulty. And then God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And he doesn't do it. And Paul doesn't know why. But he's given grace that's rooted in a relationship. So if you sit with these questions and start to name it, and you, you, you say, okay, maybe this is why I'm sensing all this negativity and energy in my head and my heart, then you might go to the next set of questions that says, okay, okay, fine. What would it look like to release these uncertainties into God's hands? There's a psalm phrase that keeps coming up. It's at the end of this psalm, and guess what? It's a repetition at the end of the psalm we looked at last week, Psalm 130, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. It's his way of saying, look, you can put your eggs in his basket. And I know the phrase is, don't put your eggs in all, you know, put all your eggs in one basket. This psalmist is said in this one and the one before. No, 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 no. You can put all your eggs in his basket. Shift the center of gravity because you can't know it. You can't do it all. Shift it. Take all those eggs and say, what would it look like, God, for me to take this thing that is draining me and to put it in your hands? And you can do that with something as big as your very life because you're all here. I'm going to bet because you trust the resurrection and new life of Jesus to get you through the other side of death itself. Amen? You put the biggest egg you can to say, I'm hitching my wagon, I'm putting that egg, that not even death itself will separate me. That's a big egg. But you can also put the littlest egg of daily bread to say, I don't know what's ahead, but I'm going to put this in your care. Let me tell you how this has worked itself out imperfectly in my own life, okay? You ready? Our kids go to face-to-face -face school. They didn't last year, they are this year. Here's me every single morning. God, I'm entrusting them into your care. I can't protect them from what I can't see. 
I can't protect them from what I don't know. Every morning we gather up and we pray before they go to school and we say, God, surround and sustain them because we can't. Every teacher, every worker, every first responder, we entrust them, we put those eggs into God's basket because I can't be there every moment of every day. That's what it looks like. That's what I'm trying to live out imperfectly. But that's the invitation. And were we to do that, that's that final question then, how would my attitude and outlook change this week? What's that thing that I just named? The thing I don't know, the thing I can't see? Fine, here. That's verse one. And when you get there, when you start there, then and only then can you get to the image of feeling like a weaned child. Do you know what a weaned child is? There are children in the room, but a weaned child is someone that has weaned itself off of that first kind of food source that they received as infants. Does the child still love his mother? Yes. Does the weaned child still need her mother? Yes. But there's this sense that I've had what I need, and I'm here because of your love, and because you're raising me, and showing me, and forming me. And the weaned child is a lot different from the unruly, cries all night infant that just has no other means of expression or understanding. The weaned child gets to that place in verse 2 because the weaned child has done the work of verse 1. Do you understand? I know who I am because I know who I ain't and I know what I can't. Just making sure you're still awake because you're still not laughing. But that's fine. This is hard work. I don't like this. I think that's why Spurgeon was right. It says it's the longest to to live and to learn. It's tough. Let's just skip the acoustic song and go to that big rocker at the end. But I can live with quiet confidence and let go of whatever's too big to hold and surrender to being held by someone bigger, which is the last half of our big idea. I can live with quiet confidence, not just because of who I am, but when I know whose I am. I've probably shared with you a time or two of this encounter that I had many years ago where the single greatest um, like experience and revelation uh, I had that has never been replicated since, but was basically this encounter with God where I just like was hit like a bolt of lightning that like, hey, you're a beloved son. Quit trying to earn it. Quit trying to prove yourself. You just need to know this. Okay, that's like a gross, uh, like shortened version of it. But in this encounter, the headline was, Adam, you're a beloved son. And this is what I walked away with. And every other time I sat with God in the months that followed, because did you know that when I was a pastor, when I became a pastor of this church, my job description said, um, sit with Jesus an hour a day, a day a month, and a week or weekend a year. Did you know that your church has this in the job description of its pastor? That's what was given to me. 
So, as a wonderful employee that um, knows who I ain't, and, and, and what I ain't is a bad pastor. I'm the best pastor. Um, every day, I, I mean, an hour? That's not long enough. Um, and I would go and I would sit. I would go and Jesus made me sit down. It's hard for me still, and I wish it wasn't. And every time I would sit, I would still hear this sense of like, you're a beloved son. I'm like, cool, got it, next, what's next? And then I would go back the next day, and it would be like, you're a beloved son. And I'd say, okay, this isn't working. And I went to a Catholic church because they're empty and quiet. And I sat down, and I said, okay, Lord. He says, you're a beloved son. I said, got it, next, next, come on. For months, this is all I heard. And it finally sunk in that perhaps I couldn't move on to the next thing until I got the main thing. And it took me a long time to get the main thing. It took him moving heaven and earth to get it to me the first time. And then it still took me six months to be like, yeah, okay, 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 I got it. And that's why I put a whole tattoo on this side of my arm to continue to remind me because I was so bad at listening for so long. But this is what that image looks like. Whose you are at the foundational level, the essential level, the main thing that you can't graduate beyond until you get this is that you are a beloved child. There's a phrase from a tribe in Papua New Guinea that says this, truth is only a rumor until it lives in your muscle. I'm telling you that you will always think that God is out to get you, that he's a parent who berates you, he's a parent who's disappointed with you. That truth will always be a rumor until you sit and like a weaned child, content in the loving arms of a mother who loves you, who's created you, who longs for you, until you can sit and embody it. You're never gonna move on to the PhD level until you can understand you're a beloved child. It's why Jesus at his baptism was told, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, and he hadn't preached one sermon. In our neighborhood kids' Zoom this morning, they said, do you know how many followers Jesus started with when he started his ministry? Zero. <laughs> now, that's not to say that for 30 years, Jesus, I said, never preached a sermon. Jesus would have taught Jesus did all these things. We don't know for sure, but we know that his public ministry began with this reminder, this foundational level that you are a child of God. If you've said yes to him, you found life in God, you woke up to that, guess what? This is essential. And I need to tell you this, as God's child, you can never out-believe your belovedness. Let me say that again. You right now, daughter of God, you cannot outbelieve your belovedness. Yeah, but I had a bad day yesterday and I yelled at my kids. You can't outbelieve your belovedness. Yeah, but I had a bad night last night. I did some things I wish I didn't do. You cannot outbelieve your belovedness. There's a lie that's going around that God keeps score. And I'm here to tell you what we learned last week is He doesn't keep score, He keeps covenant. He's a father, He's a mother to you. And guess what? He loves you, you're His child. And he knows that children do boneheaded things that make him a little crazy sometimes, but he's going to love you and form you and walk you through it. This is central and essential, and it's been lost in much of evangelicalism. 
And this is what we need to recover and recapture and tell everyone in, we, in our lives and in our neighborhood that God has said yes to them. He's longing for them to say yes back so he can adopt more kids. He loves them. He wants them. He longs for them. He loves you. He longs for you. He wants you. There's neurological studies that show people that are walking around with a miserable Christian, miserable sinner view actually have brain chemistry that is, deto- that is, that is toxic to their emotional makeup. But people who meditate and marinate on a loving God and an image of a father who calls them beloved actually has brain chemistry that is healthier when it comes to their emotional life. If that doesn't reinforce this truth that you can never outbelieve your belovedness, regardless of your performance, I don't know what other evidence we need, except we need to experience it, and that's my hope. We don't only shift our center of gravity from what we ain't and what we can't, <laughs> we shift our center of gravity from our identity, and this is really difficult because I love that I'm a pastor, but that's not my true, uh, full, essential, foundational identity. Because what happens when I'm not a pastor anymore? What happens when I'm not a, a, a parent? What happens if I lose my job, I lose my stuff, I lose my health, I lose my status? All of those things are terrible and debilitating, but I won't lose my status as a child of God. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love that God has from us in Christ Jesus. If you're in, you're in. Stay awake to this. Psalm 131 is quietly singing of true contentment in a noisy and chaotic world because every other identity may crumble, but this is bedrock. That's the image. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me because the child says, I'm not screaming and crying anymore. I realize that I can exist in this relationship without demanding and without bullying mom to give me what I need. The weaned child is safe and secure in this relationship because this weaned child has done the work of understanding this parent loves me. This is the central image. The child that has finally embraced her belovedness because she's in the embrace of a loving parent. St. Augustine of Hippo said this, and I would love for you, if you haven't heard this, congratulations. This is amazing. He says this in his own kind of theological memoir, Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. You are restless in a noisy and chaotic world because you've drifted far from your heart's true home. But the good news is, is you don't have to drag yourself all the way back down that journey. Wherever you are in your journey today, the invitation is this moment right now to center yourself again because your parent loves you. Deconstruction is having a moment in the Christian world. And there's a validity in this process of deconstructing images and things that are doing damage some values that need critiquing, but there's greater value in following through on the journey toward reconstruction. So there's 
some form of restlessness that's, that maybe we've deconstructed and we say, God, I, I don't know that I trust you and I don't know. No, let me present to you the image of the weaned child that has grown and wrestled through a painful process, but understand that all those questions of things you don't know, things you can't know, let me present to you the reconstructed question, and that is, okay, so what do I know? What's on your list? I can't know it all, verse 1. I ain't going to be too big for my britches and pretend like I am. I'm I won't set my mind or occupy my mind on the unknowable. Okay, okay, fine. What do you know? You know what I did a few months back? I wrote in my little journal that's always with me. I said, my theology simplified. Because the longer I've gone, the more I've learned, and the more I'm less sure of. But the small, short list of the things I am sure of, I'm much more deeply convinced of. And the first three things I wrote is this. God is love. Jesus is Lord. The Spirit is moving. Like, I can, put, I can put those footholds down. I'm not sure of a whole lot else. I wrote some more stuff, but at the end of the day, this is what I do know. If y'all find me deconstructing to the point that I'm tearing down at least those three things, the Trinity, the Lordship of Jesus, the activity of the Spirit of God moving, We've got big problems, but right now, I know that I know that I know that. That's the image. That's the list. I wonder what you would say. What do you know? That's the invitation at the end of Psalm 131. Israel, let me tell you what I found out. I know this to be true. Put your eggs in his basket now and forevermore. That's the invitation. And if you're not yet adopted, you're invited. He loves having kids. So Psalm 131 is not a song that an ostrich sings from under the sand. Well, we just can't know it. Doesn't matter. Let's deconstruct. We're done. No. We can sing, live, and keep walking from our experience within the embrace of God. I hope that you've caught an image, that you've caught an invitation, that you can walk through the bananas week that you're about to walk through with an inner image of you as the beloved weaned child who is contented and rested no matter what's thrown at them because in the end, we can trust God with our future now and forevermore. I want to close with this last quote because it's too good not to look at. This is from one of my heroes, I suppose, a living hero. It's Father Gregory Boyle, who runs the world's largest gang intervention ministry in Los Angeles. Amy got to visit there briefly. His book, Tattoos on the Heart, is like amazing. I've told you about it before. Why haven't you read it yet? It's amazing. Excuse me. <clears throat> what he does is he takes men and women who have no parents who have lost their parents to addiction and violence, or the parents they have aren't suitable parents. And he shows them a beloved parent. And he shows them they're valuable. And he shows them the kingdom way that treats them with dignity. So he says this, and I'll leave you with this. Our choice is not to focus 
on the narrow, but to narrow our focus. The gate that leads to life is not about restriction at all. It is about an entry into the expansive. There is a vastness in knowing you're a son or daughter worth having. We see our plenitude in God's own expansive view of us. And we marinate in this. May you marinate in your belovedness because you can't outbelieve it. May you take this too good to be true truth and let it get into your muscles and bones as you sit and seek the Father, Mother God who sustains you and surrounds you in the craziness of the week ahead, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are beloved and that he goes with you now and forevermore. Amen. May you trust in God's promises to his people. Peace, rest, blessing, even when they are difficult to believe. May you go from this place quietly confident within the embrace of a good and faithful God. May you be blessed with the fruits of humility that comes from knowing who you are and whose you are. May your humble and sacrificial actions be instrumental in serving your community and loving your neighbors along the journey ahead. Go in peace.